Welcome to the Cooping a Coal Analyst Chat. I'm your host. My name is Matthias Reinbart. I'm an analyst and advisor at Cooping a Coal Analysts. Like in every edition, I will have one guest joining me, often a fellow analyst or another interesting partner, and we will have a 15 minutes or so chat around current topics. And my guest today is John Tolbert from Seattle. Hi, John. Hi, Matthias. Great to have you again. And as I said, we are talking about current topics. And this is really true for now. We had, a, we had an episode together um, about um, fraud reduction intelligence platforms earlier. And uh, today we have to talk about some really current cases of fraud that's just going on during the pandemic crisis uh, in the US, right? Yes, yes. Um, unfortunately, uh, fraudsters have found new and innovative ways to exploit the pandemic crisis. Uh, so using fraud reduction intelligence platforms has become uh, a real paramount issue for a variety of different kinds of organizations, including, uh, as we've read in the news here recently, uh, state unemployment agencies. There's been a large amount of uh, attempted fraud against uh, various U.S. states and their unemployment agencies uh, by um, foreign fraudsters who are attempting to uh, create new accounts at the unemployment agencies to collect unemployment benefits from uh, U.S. states. Uh, I'm here in, in Seattle area of Washington, and we've been particularly hard hit in this state by this kind of a scam. Uh, and really, the, the problem that they've experienced is that um, all it's taken to create an account uh, at the unemployment agency is really just a name, uh, physical address, and social security number. And unfortunately, a lot of that information uh, has been breached from you know many different sources over the years and has been available on the dark web so the fraudsters uh, take these bits of information and use them to assemble accounts uh, and in the case you know here of state unemployment fraud uh, they take those three data points create an account and then assign a bank account you know outside the state uh, where they, they can then go collect that unemployment benefit so We see this as a, a variation on what many call new account fraud or synthetic fraud. Uh, and a lot of this information uh, that has been previously leaked from data breaches like email addresses, phone numbers, names, physical address, social security number, date of birth uh, are used to build these kinds of accounts. Yeah, I've just been notified by this great site, Have I Been Owned, um, about recent data breaches. And when, when you just look at the mere numbers, uh, 69 million breached accounts in the last, if I remember correctly. Of course, this is information that can be easily reused um, for targeting such, uh, such systems for a new account fraud. Yeah, you know, oftentimes people... I think associate fraud mostly against banks or other kinds of financial institutions. But, you know, in these cases where you're the bad guys are trying to create new accounts, they'll use records from healthcare. That's why healthcare agencies, doctors, offices, clinics, whatnot, have been uh, so heavily attacked over the last year or two because they're unfortunately a really good source of 
this particular kind of PII, including social security numbers here in the U.S., uh, you know, insurance accounts generally are tied to a person's social security number. Same thing with, you know, government agencies, school records, and employment records. So what wouldn't necessarily seem like a vector for financial fraud, all this PII can be used to build, uh, you know, these new fake accounts, which then is used for financial fraud. Um, you know, we see mule accounts, setting up new credit cards, lines of credits, but then also, you know, like this recent case in the U.S. around unemployment fraud, they use this to create a brand new account and try to collect benefits from the state. Right. So they are now harvesting what, what, they, what they gathered before and use it for the second step. Uh, so the first gather the information and then really use it um, for this fraudulent method. Yeah, a lot of the information might be a little bit harder to get a hold of, but once they, the fraudsters have it in their hands, it's, it can be more lucrative, unfortunately, than just, say, stealing credit card numbers that might have a, a fairly low per-transaction limit or might, you know, the credit card, a lot of credit card companies are pretty good at uh, detecting fraud and denying it. Uh, so, again, the, the malicious actors here found a, a weaker site to attack. But, you know, there are ways around this or ways to prevent this. We look at the mitigation, such as bot intelligence. Sometimes these things are perpetrated by different kinds of bots. Uh, and then really at the heart of it all is identity vetting. I think in the case of unemployment fraud, you know, fraudsters, if they're in possession of just those three fairly easy to get data points could create accounts. State agencies should rely on more stringent forms of identity vetting. Uh, and we can talk about that more in a minute as well. Right, but, 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 but if this information that is used for, for really uh, creating these accounts or for claiming uh, unemployment um, is that easily available, uh, there's almost a, 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 the duty to apply identity vetting when it's that easy. And if there's so much uh, information about different people around due to recent data breaches, uh, I would expect that, that this should be the standard there. Yeah, states have to make it much harder in order to file claims than, than simply showing up with a social security number. I mean, that's such a, a well-known, easily compromised bit of information. It's, it should not have the value that it does, unfortunately. Okay, I got it. Um, and I assume, um, at least in the EU and in Germany, the uh, healthcare system and hospitals especially are typically attacked because their security is due to limited budgets, due to limited resources, and because it's not their focus, their security often is um, rather weak and they get rather frequently hit by such breaches and attacks. Is this true for the states as well? Yes, I would say so. I think financial industry does a much better job on the whole of protecting identity and then also their you know, they have better cybersecurity posture than healthcare of of all different flavors, you know, whether it's on the clinic or the doctor's offices side or on the the health insurance side as well. It's not nearly as rigorous a process for obtaining accounts registering and, uh, and authentication as it should be. Uh, and, you know, we, we know that there are much better methods for 
uh, identity vetting and then, you know, strong or multi-factor authentication that could help uh, reduce the risk that healthcare companies and agencies are exposed to. In the, in the earlier episode, when we talked about um, this fraud reduction intelligence platforms, we were rather talking very theoretically. Unfortunately, you have better, more practical and real-life examples to share with us now, right? Yeah, we've been collecting information about COVID-19-related fraud scams. Um, and, and I've just put together an, <laughs> about a dozen different kinds of scams. Wow. Right now... In, in biotech researcher account takeovers, there have been several cases where companies are, are being fished to get uh, credentials of researchers. Uh, early on in the, the beginning stages of the pandemic crisis, we saw huge numbers of registrations for coronavirus-related domains, which are then used along with fake emails that, that really look like They're coming from World Health Organization or the CDC in the U.S. Uh, they would create, you know, a malicious document or try to get uh, victims to go to uh, a malicious link. And the idea would be to get them there, take over their computer or capture their credentials so that they can be used in other kinds of uh, fraud. There's been password spraying against health work, healthcare workers. Uh, not just against their corporate accounts, but also their personal accounts. Same thing uh, about healthcare non-governmental organizations have been uh, attacked both on the corporate and personal side. Uh, intelligence agencies, it seems that everybody's, well, everybody's always spying against everybody else, but there's been an, a significant uptick reported in various uh, state actors trying to collect information about what others know, especially regarding COVID-19. Stimulus scams, another example, what we were just talking about with unemployment agencies, but uh, when the stimulus checks were coming out in the U.S., there were uh, numerous scams around uh, trying to get that uh, benefit from uh, the intended recipient, and they used everything from email, text, phishing, Vishing, you know, voice phishing to get that government aid. Uh, that, that, that sounds scary. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's scary and sad all at the same time that people would try to uh, manipulate a, a real global crisis uh, for fraud. Right, but there's even more. Yeah, yeah, it's just, it's, um, people have to be on guard for this. We've seen, you know, more vishing, reverse vishing, you know, send somebody an email uh, or a text, uh, make it look like it's coming from, you know, a bank or a utility about a late payment, you know, because as we've seen too, many people are unemployed as a result of the crisis. So they, they craft an email or a text that looks like it's coming from, you know, some kind of service provider and saying, you know, you know you've got a late payment. Click this link, it takes you to a malicious site, people put their credentials in, and then, you know, the, the bad guys have those credentials. You know, this is particularly problematic with SMS because, you know, there are URL shorteners in use. So even if somebody's trying to, you know, be a little bit more on top of the situation, it can be hard to tell 
what the link is uh, within SMS. Right, and these are often shortened, um, and and so they are almost used to it to clicking on that link when it comes from their telco or whatever. Yeah, and you know, as a result of security awareness training over the years, many many employees are are kind of on guard against phishing emails, but uh, it's it's been less common over text until the last few months. Same thing with the voice calls, or you know, sending an email and then asking someone to call. Uh, a number where fraudsters are on the other end of the line. Many, many twists and variations in how this is uh, happening these days. Right. More examples from your side? Yeah, I'm just going to quickly run through the list here. So phishing unemployed people with fake job offers. Again, maybe direct them to a site, have them enter some credentials, hope that those credentials are, you know, reusing emails and passwords. Um Fraudulent charitable campaigns, collect money, PII, get shares on social media. Uh, this one's been really rampant. Fake medical supply sites. People, bad, bad actors are sending out uh, spam email about, you know, low-cost masks or test kits. Uh, and, and then people will order them and then not get what they're uh, intending to order. There are pretty sophisticated work-from-home charity scams, uh, mule accounts in use. The idea there is, you know, somebody's out of work. Do you want to be able to work from home? Sign up here. The malicious actor will tell the person, oh, you need to go get a Bitcoin account. We'll transfer money in Bitcoin. We want you to uh, move that Bitcoin into another account for us. It's it's really just money laundering. So it's a, it's a way of perpetrating fraud uh, and preying on people who are looking for a work-from-home opportunity. And then lastly, lots and lots of coronavirus and political disinformation campaigns. Uh, and as we've seen multiple studies over the last few years, it seems that disinformation spreads easier and faster than information. Oh, yeah, this, this I can confirm here as well, right? Yeah. So what, what, what to do against that? What, what, what are the methods to prevent this, that from happening? Well, you know, just focusing back on the, let's say, the unemployment fraud or the other government aid fraud kinds of cases, I think there, as we covered in the last session and in the Fraud Reduction Intelligence Platform's Leadership Compass, there are about six major techniques that Uh, vendors can utilize to uh, reduce different kinds of fraud. But really, I've, I just want to focus on identity proofing here. I think in the case of unemployment fraud, requiring more than three bits of information to be able to assemble account and receive benefits is absolutely necessary. So identity proofing is really, at the heart of it, validating a person in their request against authoritative documents uh, in order to establish a digital account of one kind or another. Really, uh, you know, being able to tie this back to, let's say, a passport, a driver's license number, or some other authoritative uh, document, you know, whether it be EIDs in Europe or something like that, um, it has to be more than something that can be easily fished or gotten from the dark web to assemble accounts. I would say that um, 
you know, implementing identity proofing as part of an overall fraud reduction strategy should be uh, a paramount concern for government agencies as well as any other financial or healthcare institution at this time. Uh, identity proofing plus multi-factor authentication can significantly reduce the amount of fraud uh, that can be uh, enacted against these kinds of agencies and organizations. And it should be in the in the interest of the organization or the governments themselves, because actually we have two victims here. On the one hand, the payment is is made by the government in that case, and um, the actual um, um, person behind the stolen credentials also um, is a victim because they have to prove that they actually did not, um, for example, apply for for unemployment here. Exactly. Uh, you know, it's a loss on the part of the taxpayers, uh, as you're saying, you know, the government agency loses money, but then it's a huge hassle for the victims of identity theft. And if somebody loses those three bits of information, including a social security number, then they can be used elsewhere. And yeah, there's, there's a lot of work that an individual has to do to be able to clear their record at that point. Okay, so what else can, can be done when it comes to identity proofing? Well, you know, it's it's kind of a more advanced use case, but I have seen uh, several instances where uh, vendors have created pretty interesting and, in most cases, secure mobile applications that allow for identity vetting, especially for, like, financial use cases. In this case, it would take, you know, a user would take their phone, be able to take a picture of either a driver's license or a passport photo, take a selfie, compare those, uh, maybe read the, the magnetic strip or use an FC to, you know, get the information out of the physical passport and then tie those bits of information together at the time of account registration. So that, you know, there are a few mobile apps uh, by a few vendors that, Uh, can do this. And I think, you know, the technology is around, it works, it's just not widely deployed yet. And I think this too could be a, a really good way of helping to reduce fraud. Uh, I mean, especially in times like a pandemic where it's not as easy to say, go in, in person and register, show the documents and have, you know, close contact Uh, in order to be able to do that. I think mobile solutions uh, are definitely something that both government agencies and other kinds of private sector businesses should be looking at to do identity proofing remotely. Right. Although there is still some kind of social gap to be able to to actually have a smartphone to run a mobile app, I think that is really um, more and more getting common to, to almost every uh, citizen of the U.S. to be able to, to use such a mechanism, more or less. Well, you, you know, you've got a really good point there. I mean, one of the drawbacks to technical solutions is making the assumption that everybody has the latest smartphone. So, you know, this would work for a certain percentage of uh, the population, but it doesn't work for everybody. So you still have to make accommodations for those that, that may not have um, a capable smartphone. I mean, even 
older model smartphones won't necessarily allow you to do all the sophisticated things that are required, let's say, uh, for a remote identity proofing use case. Exactly. Yeah, I think that might still be an issue and the solutions that a government agency has to provide needs to cover all use cases. So to cover the, the full population of the state. Well, yeah, you know, and even in the U.S., not I think it's somewhere under 30% of people have a passport, and then not everyone has a driver's license either. So there's going to be a certain segment of the population that do not have these two particular authoritative documents that they could use for identity proofing. But, you know, there are other options, uh, you know, non-driver's uh, identity documents that generally can be had, but... You know, what do you do when you're in a case like now where you can't go to the Department of Motor Vehicles and get a a brand new driver's license without some difficulty? And, and that also varies state by state at this point. Right. Yeah. Sometimes it's difficult to believe that it's 2020, but yes, I, I fully see the problem. And the same is true for the UK also, where there's no ID card at all. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, thank you, John, that you presented uh, such an, an insight into current things that are happening, although they are um, actually sad and, and tragic for those uh, involved. Um, but it's good to see that the work that we're doing has really to do something with the real life and real threats and that we might support in, in preventing um, people from falling victim to that and to help organizations to be prepared to help their customers slash citizens here. Um, and you mentioned the leadership compass already. What else can we as Kupinger Call provide to them for, to interested parties uh, as help? Yeah, I would say government agencies or other organizations that need help selecting fraud reduction intelligence, if they don't have it, definitely get it. Take a look at the leadership compass on fraud reduction intelligence platforms. We have a couple of webinars that are out there also uh, that were done uh, sort of after the leadership compass. And then, yeah, in general, if people have questions, uh, feel free to contact us. We would uh, definitely be willing to help point um, agencies or companies in the right direction when they're looking for some help with reducing fraud. Yes, I can uh, just confirm this. Um, that is true for the US team and that is true, of course, for the EU team um, of Kupinger Coal and around the world, also in APEC. So just get in touch with us at kupingercoal.com and please let us know if we can be of support and at least um, yeah, try to, to fetch the uh, leadership compass, um, maybe even with a 30-day free um, test account. Um, just make sure that we make the situation a bit safer here. So thank you, John, for um, telling us your insight and your experiences from, from what's going on right now in the US. Thanks, Matthias. And uh, yeah, thanks to the audience for listening and stay safe, stay secure and stay vigilant when it comes to phishing and all these mechanisms that you described, John. So uh, looking forward to the next episode, hopefully with better news um, and uh, Thanks again, John. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye.